Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate. Because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity describes behavior that's crooked, while transgression refers to breaking trust. And sin? This is actually the most common of these bad words in the Bible. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God, a sacred being who represents the Creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one, and he says, I have sinned, I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. Well, happy Wednesday, everyone. I feel like a happy thing to start off with a, a video about sin. It is a good thing to kick off Ash Wednesday. I hope that as you leave today, that feels like a good thing that we enter the season of Lent. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of these 40 days leading up to Easter, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, it's a really weird tension to live in to say happy Ash Wednesday and it's really a good thing. And also we're going to talk about sin today. That's what Ash Wednesday is for. As we enter 40 days of the season of Lent, we want to really acknowledge the sin that each of us has, that we are broken people who desperately need our Savior. It makes the resurrection on Easter Sunday that much better, that much more personal when we acknowledge for ourselves that we need Jesus, 
that we all fall short of God's standard for us. And so I really like that BibleProject.com video that describes sin. Because sin is a word that we hear generally, not even just church world, but generally you hear sin tossed around. What does it actually mean? Sin certainly means our behavior, where we miss the goal with relationships, uh, people in our lives. We don't live up to the standard that God has for us in those relationships. It's also our actions against God or toward God or missing what God has for us. But more than that, and the video talks about this, sin is a human condition. It's not just where our actions miss God. It's what we're born into because of the brokenness of this world. And so often our sin is just missing the mark. That's the simple definition of sin. It's to fail or to miss the goal. And so God puts us on a path and says, here is my best intention for you. There's a target, and sin is simply being off of that path, missing that target. And sometimes that happens in ways we acknowledge. We can see, like, oh, I know I messed up. But sometimes, and more often than not, there's so much sin in our lives that we don't even know we have. We don't even realize that we have missed God's glorious standard for us, the full life that God has for us. We're just off the mark enough to not really realize it. And this is a condition of being human. The video kind of ends with a reference to Paul's letter to the Romans. This is one of my favorite books of the Bible. But in Romans chapter 6, Paul says we are slaves to this sin. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. You can be a slave to sin, and that leads to death. We don't really talk about slavery much, but imagine being a slave to sin. It's a pretty uncomfortable thought, isn't it? It's not fun to sit with the reality that I am enslaved to sin, that this is a condition that I am just born into. It's really not fun to talk about. It's not like you guys email me and say, let's grab coffee and we sit down and you say, okay, I'm going to tell you all the ways I've sinned today, Ashley. Let's talk about my brokenness and my fallenness. As followers and believers of Christ in a society where we are comfortable, we very much live in a culture of comfort Sin is something, as believers, that we just kind of store in the back of our brain, like a nugget for later, like, I know I'm a sinner, I know I need Jesus, but I'm just going to shove it under the rug a little bit, I'll get to it later. It's not really at the forefront of our brain every single day, because it's uncomfortable. We love comfort. You are sitting in a padded chair in a temperature-controlled worship center. You probably have shoes on your feet. My shoes are not comfortable, FYI. Probably have shoes on your feet, maybe more comfortable than mine. Clothes on your back. We live in a culture of comfort. And so to get uncomfortable, to talk about our brokenness and our fallenness, we don't really like that. It's a nugget in the back. And Lent, these 40 days that lead up to Easter, is an invitation to bring it to the front. To sit in the uncomfortableness that we are broken and we absolutely have to have a savior. It makes the resurrection personal for you and for me. 
Uh, There's a song we sing every Good Friday, and there's a lyric in that song that says, it was my sin that held Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And I've heard that song my whole life every Good Friday. And every year I weep because it's personal. It is you and me who nail our Savior to a cross with our brokenness. Before Jesus began his ministry, he spent 40 days being tempted by the devil. And this was a very uncomfortable testing for Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. Let's remember that Jesus is 100% human. We read he's tempted in the devil, or he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. He is very hungry. He's fasting. And I think we kind of write that off pretty quickly because he's God. Like, how hungry can God get? Jesus is also 100% human. I do not know what it is like to be very hungry for 40 days in the wilderness with the devil tempting me. Jesus is very uncomfortable physically, emotionally, mentally. And the devil shows up and says, during that time, the devil came to him and says, he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. If you really are who you say you are, then you're hungry. These stones can become bread. The devil shows up and tempts Jesus with comfort. He also tempts Jesus with power. He takes him to the highest point and says, if you're really the son of God, you can jump off and soar. If you're really the son of God, do you see all of this out there? That can be yours. You can rule over it. And Jesus, in very physical and emotional and mental uncomfort, defends himself with the word of God. He quotes scripture back to the devil. Jesus doesn't give into comfort and power when that is presented to him. He sits in the uncomfort. And as I've began the year and thought about personal goals and goals we have as a family, and for the last six weeks we've been preaching through Hope's 10 for 10 vision, which is 10 goals that Hope has as a church for the next 10 years. And as I've prayed over those goals, I thought, God, like, what's going to help me step into what it is you're calling me to? And I have been very convicted by my comfort. We do not grow in our comfort zones, and I know that. Any great researcher about growth, business world, regular world, religious world, will tell you, you do not grow in your comfort zone. And so as I've been praying about where God's calling me, where God's calling the church, God gave me this phrase, and it's totally made up because this isn't really a real word, holy uncomfort. When I typed uncomfort into PowerPoint, it underlined it in red. And I was like, they won't see that. I'll just tell you about it. This is not a real thing. But I think it makes sense. Holy uncomfort. When we present to God all the ways in which we are very comfortable, I really like my life. I really like my day-to-day schedule for the most part, right? Sometimes I'd be in bed at this time on a regular Wednesday night. There's a lot of things about my life that are very comfortable. They're very regular. And we miss God showing up in those things. And so my prayer for the last six weeks or so has been, God, would you show up and make these things uncomfortable, but in a holy sense? 
because certainly I don't want trials and suffering and persecution in my life. We do grow in those seasons too. But there's just the everyday things that I'm not sure I leave room for God to show up in. And holy uncomfort brings us into deeper relationship with God. Holy uncomfort brings us into deeper relationship with God. It's what's happening to Jesus as he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus is growing in his personal relationship with God because he's so uncomfortable. And as a culture of comfort, we hate this. It is not a fun prayer to say to God, could you please make me uncomfortable? Would you please show up in holiness to grow me deeper and make these comfortable pieces of my life uncomfort? I can tell you that from experience. God's going to answer that prayer, and it's not really fun. But as you experience that uncomfort, it drives us into deeper relationship with God because when we acknowledge the uncomfort, it's a reminder of how badly we need him. I grew up in Lutheran church world, and so gaining something for Lent, like adding something to your calendar or giving something up for Lent was always kind of like normal. Like people were always saying to one another, what are you giving up? What are you giving up? What are you doing? Are you adding something? The point of that is not to earn God's favor for the next 40 days. It's not to show off as a Christian, as a Christ follower, I gave up pop for Lent. I'm giving up caffeine or candy, or I'm adding a daily devotional, right? It's not to brag about how great of a Christian you are. The point of those practices is to make you uncomfortable so that when you reach for the caffeine or the pop or the candy and you're like, oh, I gave that up for Lent, a prayer goes up because you're uncomfortable. It reminds you that this thing is better in God's hands than in your hands. This is holy uncomfort driving us into deeper relationship with God. And this is a very real tension that we live in all the time. We want to be comfortable, and yet God's going to show up and show off in our uncomfort. We know forgiveness and grace. We know that Easter is coming, that these 40 days of Lent end with Jesus' resurrection. We know that death is for us. And his resurrection is for us. We know that forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that God has for us. And we hold that alongside our desperate need for a savior because we're sinners. And it's our sin that puts him on the cross. In just a little bit, we will take communion alongside the distribution of ashes. You'll come forward for communion. And communion is a celebratory thing. We're good Lutherans, and so we take it very somberly, and that's okay. But let me tell you what's happening in the meal of communion, if you didn't actually know this. Communion is a sacrament. It means that Jesus has instituted this thing. Uh, At the Last Supper, he says, go and do this. Eat this bread and drink this wine. This is my body broken for you. Eat it and remember me when you do that. This is my blood poured out for you. Drink this and remember me when you drink it. And he promises, as he institutes this meal, that he is in that meal. That he is going to encounter you. Not because you and I have earned it. We are sinners who always fall short of God's standard. It's the human condition. So we do not earn his grace and his forgiveness and his love in that meal. 
it is freely given. He freely encounters us when we eat the bread and dip it in juice or wine. That is a celebratory thing, that God's grace is for me, that his forgiveness is for me. And then today, right after you receive that meal, you'll be marked with a cross of ashes on your forehead. And whoever's distributing those ashes will say to you, from dust you came and to dust you will return. And it's a reminder of our mortality, that the wages of sin are death, that we are human beings so broken, so in desperate need of a Savior. And so we hold those right next to each other, God's grace and forgiveness and my desperate need for him, the fact that I can't earn his grace and forgiveness and his love, and I so need it. More than anything else in the entire world, I need him. And I want to talk about the role of ashes in scripture just for a little bit so we can embrace really what it is we do on Ash Wednesday. Uh, Ashes show up mostly in the Old Testament uh, in scripture, and ashes are used for grief or mourning, repentance, and purification. Think about how ashes are created. They're created by fire. Where does fire show up in the Old Testament? Well, in offerings, in sacrifices, in burnt sacrifices. And so as the Israelites don't know Jesus yet, they have to atone for all their sins. They bring different offerings to the temple all the time. And so there's a lot of ash produced. And as they make those sin offerings or those atonement offerings, they will then later use those ashes as external reminders of grief and mourning. We don't grieve very well in our world. In Jesus' day, as Jewish people, they grieved really well. It was a long process. It was very communal. They did it together. But they'd put ashes on their face as a sign, an external sign, that so their community knew we are grieving something. We are mourning something. Ashes were also a sign of repentance. Repentance means to change the way you think, to go a different direction. And so if somebody had decided, I'm not really living the way God wants me to, and I'm going to change that, they also might put ashes on their face, again, as an external sign that they were changing something about their life. Ashes also symbolize purification. Just as fire purifies, if you were impure because of a Jewish purity law and you were coming back to your culture or your village after being made pure, you might put ashes on to symbolize, I have been okayed by the priests. I am now pure to enter back into Jewish regular daily life. And again, those things, we hold them in tension. This is a symbol of purification and repentance, but also mourning and grief. Yep. And there's an Old Testament king I want to introduce you to, who in just a few short verses, we will see grief and mourning and repentance, and we'll see God show up in that. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. Jonah chapter 3. Do you all remember Jonah? This is like Jewish comedy at its best, okay? Jonah is a prophet called by God. And at the very beginning of Jonah, this is Jonah chapter 1, the Lord gives this message to Jonah. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. And Jonah says, no way, literally runs the opposite direction, ends up swallowed by a big fish and is spit out on the shores of, you guessed it, Nineveh. This fish literally puts him where God has called him to be. And so Jonah finally does proclaim this message to the Ninevites, but some quick history about Nineveh for you. 
Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire in this time is the most powerful, most brutal empire of the world. Assyrians do not care about people. They care about wealth and resources and land and enslaving people and growing their kingdom. And so Assyria was a very brutal empire to be under the power of. And God's chosen people, the Israelites, are a very small people group in this, in this time. And so the Israelites versus Assyria have no chance. So the Assyrians conquer, and they conquer, and they conquer. If you've ever been to any major art museum of the world, and I've had the great pleasure of being in so many, they all have Assyrian wings. There's so much history and art that we get from the Assyrian Empire because they were so wealthy and so powerful. And this is where God has called Jonah. You're going to go to their capital city and declare my judgment. This people group that they've probably never heard of, the God of this people group, is going to declare judgment on this great empire. No wonder Jonah ran the other way. But finally, Jonah gets to the shores of Nineveh. This time, this is Jonah 3.3, this time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. Can you imagine walking into a city? Takes three days to see. You and I are like, it takes like a whole day to get across Ankeny, okay? In Jesus' day, and in this day, this is way before Jesus. In this day, a city that takes three days to see is massive. This is a massive city. So Jonah just walks into this big old city in 40 days. 40 days, it's a significant biblical number, you will be destroyed. Here's the miraculous part. The people of Nineveh believed God's message. Jonah didn't even say that God is going to destroy you. Jonah said to them, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the people of Nineveh who do not know God believe God's message through Jonah. And they declare a fast, and put on burlap to show their sorrow. They do these external things to show their sorrow. Church, we're not very good at showing our sorrow. We really don't grieve well because grief is uncomfortable. And we live in a culture of comfort. And so in the next 40 days, I hope that you grieve really, really well. I hope that you take time to examine the things in your life that need your grief, that need you to just sit with them for a little bit. And you say, Ashley, life's really good. I don't have things to grieve. Let me lovingly remind you that every single one of us should be grieving the fact that we are sinners, that we are enslaved to sin, that we have no hope against sin because the wages of sin is death. We should be grieving this. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to talk about it. And that's the reality. And it drives us into deeper relationship with Jesus. We need to sit with this for 40 days. We need to take it from the back of our mind to the front of our mind and be okay with the holy uncomfort of God showing up in the midst of that 
I was listening to a podcast also from the Bible Project. Uh, it was actually about the Sermon on the Mount, but they were talking about grief and mourning. And they say in that podcast that those who have power can ignore grief. Power is kind of the opposite of grief. If you have power, you can ignore grief. And the more I thought about it, I thought, in a culture of comfort, that's true. We have some power. And it's really easy to ignore grief. It's really easy to not grieve because we can just keep on keeping on. Hard things happen. I'm a sinner. But it's okay because I still have a job to go to tomorrow and a great family. And you you start listing the things that give us worldly power or we feel powerful in. Remember what the devil tempts Jesus with? Comfort and power. We really need to grieve, church. It's what Lent is for. And in the next verse, the king of, when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, the king of Nineveh, the most powerful ruler in the world at the time, the most brutal ruler in the world at the time, when he hears what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Talk about a power shift. This king had no reason to believe in this God of Israel, to believe this little man named Jonah, who showed up and said, destruction on your people. This king not only believes, he steps off his throne, an actual shift of power to show, and he visibly shows He takes off his royal robes and he puts on burlap. I think about like a potato sack. You ever done a potato sack race? That's not comfortable. And the king puts this on as an external sign that he's going to grieve and he's going to mourn because this is really important stuff. He's starting to understand and he sits in a heap of ashes as a sign of this morning. And I find it fascinating that Jonah's message is one of condemnation. In 40 days, you will be destroyed. That is God's message to the Ninevites. And so often, when we hear the word sin, when we start acknowledging sin in church world, I think so many of us jump straight to condemnation. Well, no room for me in heaven, I guess. Yep, I'm a sinner. Boom, done. What the king and his people actually hear is conviction. God's message might have been one of condemnation, but their response to that message was one of conviction. They changed their behavior. The king decrees, no one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. In his conviction, the king changes his behavior and he decrees to his people, we're going to change, we are going to turn from our evil ways. And because Jonah's just a funny book, it's a Jewish comedy, animals also wear garments of mourning. Everyone, even the cows out back, are going to show that they are changing their life because of this message. This is the difference between condemnation and conviction. And God doesn't destroy Nineveh. That's the best news. 
When these people turn from their ways, the Hebrew word for turn is shuv. Everyone say shuv. Shuv. Not shove, but shuv. It comes from the image of walking. And as you are walking one direction, if you are walking the wrong way, to shuv means to turn and go a new way to walk the right direction. The New Testament word for repentance, to change your direction, to change your mind. These people shuv, they turn, they are so convicted in God's message. They mourn that. They externally show that mourning when you walk out of here with a cross on your head of ash. It is an external symbol to the rest of the world that you are in mourning. That you know you need Jesus. And then change your behavior. And then turn. Ask God to show up and make you uncomfortable. Because he's not going to come up and condemn you. He's not going to show up in, in your life and lead you into disaster. God's going to show up in your life in such a holy and profound way that he brings life and resurrection and restoration and grace. And when Easter comes and goes this year, you might have grown way more than you ever thought possible in your relationship with God. Because we took time to be uncomfortable, we asked God to show up in that. This is the heart of God, church. It's a heart that loves us so wholly and fully and desperately that he sends Jesus to die for you. The heart of God is not one of condemnation. It's always been one of restoration and love and grace, forgiveness, he loves you so much that he offers these things freely to you. The heart of God is the sermon series we'll be in for the next six weeks leading up to Easter. We'll explore who it is God really is, how deeply he loves us as we build toward Jesus' resurrection. And so for the next 40 days, I want you to marinate on that, on God's love for you, but also please grieve. Please remember how desperately you need him. Ask him to show up and make you wholly uncomfortable, to bring uncomfort in a holy way that drives you deeper in relationship with him. I love our scripture reading. It talks about beauty for ashes, how God shows up. He's in the business of restoring. He always has been. From Genesis to Revelation, God shows up to restore and love all the time. This is the scripture you heard in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Church, God always brings beauty for ashes. Sometimes we need to sit in the ashes 
We need to let him show up in holy uncomfort and surrender. It's a power shift to give all of those things to God and ask him to show up in that. For the remainder of our time together, we're going to give you time to just be, to pray, to sit with God. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to pray and just sit with God. That's a really good thing. And so I hope you embrace any uncomfortable feeling you have in the next, you know, 12 minutes or so. So what's going to happen is we're going to come forward. You'll be dismissed by Rose from an usher. And you'll come forward for communion, like usual. Then you'll receive your ashes. And then after that, you are free to go back to your seat and sit and enjoy worship and pray and just be present with Jesus. And or, as you, after you receive communion and ashes, you can head to a prayer station. And they're all behind you in our gathering space here. And I'm going to outline for you what these prayer stations are so you know exactly what you're walking into. Uh, we have soaking prayer and verbal prayer. Uh, those are kind of to my left by the east doors. Soaking prayer, those chairs are facing the east doors. Uh, you just sit down, and a prayer partner will approach you. They'll, place, they'll ask you, can I place my hands on your shoulders? And you can say yes or no. You're not going to offend them either way. But they will not say anything else to you. They will simply pray over you completely silently, and they'll just tap you when they're done praying, and you can get up and move on. Verbal prayer, you'll sit in a chair across from a prayer partner, and they will ask you, what can I pray for? And you tell them, and then out loud, they will pray for you. Then we have a dissolving paper station. This is a, a way to confess, confessing our sins. You can write your sins on a piece of uh, dissolving paper. Maybe you need a lot of pieces of paper. We all need a lot of pieces of paper. But if you're like me, I literally thought, what if I write my sin on a piece of paper and it doesn't dissolve quick enough and everybody sees my sin? Here's the deal. We're all sinners. And you can just scribble on a piece of paper or just pray over it, but watch it dissolve in the vase of water right in front of your eyes. And then there's a penny cleaning station. This is God's forgiveness. We're all tarnished. So take a penny, make it really clean, and then keep that penny for the next 40 days. Put it somewhere where you're going to see it. And when you look at it, remember that you are tarnished, that we are broken, and we are also cleansed. We are made right with God, not by anything we do, but by everything he's done. Then you can pick up a packet of seeds, take these seeds home, put them in some dirt, put them in a window, and over the next 40 days, that shall start to sprout something green. It's a reminder that our faith journeys are a growing experience and we will become like mighty oaks that are made right with God when we allow him to show up in our life. Then there's some coloring pages. You can grab a couple of those and sometimes it's just easier to scribble while you pray or color while you pray and spend time with Jesus. The service will not go longer than like 70 minutes. This time is yours. You'll know when it's over. You don't need to worry. Like, when do I leave? We'll tell you. God wants to encounter you in this time. He wants to show up for you and with you. It's a really good time to be a little uncomfortable. But to hang out with him. Let him show up for you.